things, as many things are in being a good disciple of Christ. So, a staple scripture to sort of frame that for the day is Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, right after the basic intro of Proverbs. We go into here that fear the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Everything of legitimate value in this life comes from God, starts with a foundation in fear of the Lord. God determines value, nothing else does, like we talked about. In a way, the very existence of anything is a valuable blessing, just creation itself. Right? But God makes clear what is of special value to him in Scripture. And we have a really good amount of information, a real wealth of information that God has blessed us with in that. And these things of value actually become blessings for us when we use them for God's glory, as we went over last week. And all pursuits of real value end in eternal blessings. Our goal here is not to be successful or impressive on earth, but to have God's approval through Christ, and to be able to see the fruit from our faithfulness in Christ, right? It's always good and comforting and assuring when we can see the fruit coming from that. That's how we know that our faith is real, that it's not dead faith. God gives us his scripture and his spirit so that we understand what specifically is truly valuable according to God. In other words, God tells us about the things a person does whom God sees as great in the kingdom of heaven. And what those people who God views as great, what they understand as valuable. We get a glimpse of godly hearts through the scripture and of the testimony and documentation of all these people. We get a glimpse of godly hearts of the Father himself through direct revelation, you know, about our Father in heaven and looking at a bunch of his people in detail, and especially his son. Jesus allows us to essentially see the Father. In John 17, verse 25, Jesus says, O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have have revealed them to you. I have revealed you to them. And I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. So, Jesus claims to know the Father. And you best believe that he means it when he says that, when he says that he knows the Father. He's never shy about this, about his authoritative representation of the Father and his ability to teach us about the Father. This is one good reason why we're to be disciples of Jesus Christ, because he is an extremely good reflection of who the Father is and so that we get a good understanding of who God is and who we need to be in relation to Him. So through Jesus, we can better understand what things in life are valuable and will produce true and pure blessings. So not just that value comes from God and only from God, but that there are specific things that He values above His general creation that has value because He created it but there are things that he finds especially valuable and expects us to do and understand. The Gospels make many things clear about Jesus, including what he valued even from 
the start. Luke chapter 2, that's what we're going to read for right now, starting in verse 21. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem, a day's journey, uh, to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting amongst the religious leaders, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search? He replied, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. In my father's house, as that scripture said, is, in a more literal translation, involved in my father's affairs, if you look into that, or involved with his father's people. Jesus valued the presence and community of God from the very outset. He broke free of his family. A 12-year-old boy separated himself from his physical support, everything that he'd known in his life, and went and hung out at the temple, left his parents go, and essentially let them ditch him as he was absorbed in the teachings and the company there at the temple in his father's house. At 12 years old, your identity and stability are still fully tied to family. This is no easy task. You don't see very many 12-year-olds running away. This is no... Um, yeah, this was no exception for Jesus as a boy of 12 years old. But... He saw family and stability in his father in heaven. He saw the value in that, in his father's people. Jesus also valued his godly education and maturity in that. So it's not that those things weren't true of him. It's just that he understood the bigger picture, who his real, true father was, who his real people were, even at that age. He grew to understand God by this pursuit and this process that he started so early. He understood what God values and how to be a good servant of God. He didn't get a free pass. He, didn't, uh, he wasn't just a spirit with a skin suit, right? But we know Christ to be fully man, fully human. Jesus worked for his wisdom from an early age, searching the scriptures and listening and undoubtedly asking the Father to show him that wisdom. He searched the scriptures and listened to the religious teachers <clears throat> with passion. We also have a clear-cut Old Testament witness to this value of God from the Father instead. King Solomon, right after King David, he loved God and was obedient, the scriptures say, especially in the first part of his reign. And because of this, God essentially offered him a wish 
In 1 Kings 3, verse 7, we see Solomon saying, Now, O Lord my God, you have made me king instead of my father David, but I'm like a little child, a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they cannot be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong for who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours. He valued God's wisdom above all else. He was given a wish for anything. And God was pleasantly surprised by his reply. He didn't count on all the king's advisors that he had or the wisdom that you know, somebody that's born into power usually comes with, but he recognized his lack of direction without God and wanted to serve God and his people up to God's standard, right? God was impressed with his reply and his desire to want to do right by his responsibility like that, and God gave him legendary wisdom because of that, and on top of that, riches and fame too, because God was so pleased with that. Jesus valued these things even when he was just a kid, we see. He valued wisdom and being with God's people and taking care of God's people. Being with his brothers and sisters under God. Pursuing wisdom in a childlike passion and engagement with his people under the house of God. And after Jesus grew up, he was called to service. Or he was enlisted rather, and sent off to war in another perspective of that as it came time for him in a path that he knew would lead to his death. He was no stranger. Even if he didn't have foresight of that, he knew the scriptures. He knew that a prophet's life doesn't turn out very great a lot of times. And he was beyond prophets. Read Matthew chapter 3. Verse 13 through 17. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. And after his baptism, as Jesus came out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice said from heaven, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Jesus is far above John, and John fully agrees with that. But we see a particular attitude from Jesus in submission here. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates verse 15 a little more literally and a little bit more um, transparently, I would say. And it says in verse 15, instead of it should be done, Jesus saying this, it should be done for we must fully carry out all that God requires. It says, Jesus says, allow, I'll allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus understood that he was far beyond John in terms of what he was meant for and his authority and all of these things. But Jesus lowers himself to submit to God's design and order in that. And for his example to others, as everybody was coming to John to be prepared for the new ministry that was about to come through Jesus, for calling back 
his people to God. He values God's order above his own desires, above his own glory, above everything. And that is obviously the story of his life, quite literally, till the end. In this process, God declares, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Had Jesus done anything to deserve this praise? You know? Nothing extraordinary that we have recorded anyway. Like, for example, he wouldn't have made it into the Hall of Faith yet based on his actions. He hadn't been called by God yet and responded in some grand way to, to make a notable appearance in Scripture. In fact, there's a huge chunk of his life that isn't even mentioned. He was presumably growing up and being a good man and a good son and learning and growing in wisdom and stature and all these things, like the Scripture says. But in Hebrews 11, we see a list of the most faithful and obedient people. Jesus hadn't carried out his calling yet. He didn't, he, his, by his plain, grandiose actions, he hadn't made that list yet, if you will. But he was obedient. He was obedient to his father and his mother, and his heart treasured to do the will of his father and to have that relationship and to be joined with the body. And he simply loved what God loved. And God was proud of that, and he was pleased by that. And this brought the Father great joy, the Scripture says. Then, as Jesus went forward into the middle of his ministry, the main body of his ministry, we see lots of other things that God values in terms of his teaching and showing us how to please the Father, how to be a good servant, how to be great in the kingdom of God, how to love others, and all of these things. But overall, instead of talking for the rest of our life about this body of material, which we will continue to do over the rest of our lives, I just want to brush that all together in that Jesus spent his whole life valuing the opportunity to teach. That's what he did. He just constantly taught people. He sacrificed sleep. He averted his plans. He did all sorts of things to get out of his way and to push other people that would try to stop him from teaching. He went around those things and worked through those things to teach people. We see that God very much values teaching, and he valued faithful company in that. In the middle of all this teaching, the things that really stand out to Jesus is when people are faithful, when they understand God and understand what he values and believe him and take that extra step of faith. Jesus valued faithful company. In the temple, he sought that as a kid and as an adult, he encouraged it. In Luke chapter 7, we see in verse 2, at that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. And when the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some rejected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. He was propelled by the testimony of this person, by his love for God's people. So Jesus went with them, 
But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I am not even worthy to come and meet you, in fact. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they go ahead and do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you guys what, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. This was not even a Jew. This was a Roman centurion officer. Real recognize real, right? And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. So we see in this scenario that I want to point out as something significant is that we see Jesus teaching a lot of stuff, interacting with a lot of people. You don't see him get real excited in a positive way very often. And at this, he was excited. And he turned and shared it with the whole crowd. He turned it into a teaching moment, a positive teaching moment. Usually he turns a lot of things into, you know, teaching moments based on where people are flawed in their thought processes and their faith and things like this. But this was a major positive element here. Jesus was encouraged and excited by this guy's faith. And um, when other people are faithless, he was troubled. But we should take value and joy in opportunities to be faithful and to be with faithful people. This attribute is something that God really, really values. And if you break it down here, it's not just that, that he was faithful and he did you know, the things that God wanted. He took a step that had never really been taken before based on knowing God and knowing his character, right? He knew that God was the God of all the universe and was powerful and stuff. Jesus healed lots of people, but generally only in his proximity. But he was like, Jesus... I know who you are, and I know who your father is. You don't even need to come. I'm not worthy of that. Just say the word. And Jesus was like, wow, that's cool. How can we do that as people in pursuing the things that God values and pursuing the things that God gets excited about? How can we, based on who we know God to be, extrapolate that further and take a step in faith in something that we may never have seen before. Maybe we never heard of. But in faith, we pursue God and make him proud and excited of us in that process. These are the types of things that we want to recognize and value. These are also the hardest choices, though. You know, are you going to have self-care or care for others and step beyond the place where you are caring for yourself in that You know, is it between me or God? That's always going to be the choice we have. And that works itself out in a million different circumstances. And when we deny ourselves and trust that God will take care of us in that, that's when we see real, true, strong faith. And we see the ultimate situation in that with martyrs, right? Some Some of us are reading like Jesus freaks. And that's a whole book of people that stepped out in faith beyond their life, and God will honor them for that, and we continue to honor them for that even. 
Jesus was all about leading others to God, and he took every opportunity to do that in this teaching ministry. He spent his entire life doing it, including the faith of the centurion there. These were even Jews that he was talking to. He wasn't even really targeting the Gentiles. These were people that already knew God, knew who God was, but they needed to be discipled and directed in that process. Jesus was called rabbi or teacher all the time, and even when people were threatening him, Jesus turned it into a teaching moment. When he commissioned his successors in his mission, he took it very seriously because these were going to be the future teachers. He valued his main crew of teachers and apostles. He prayed all night about it. This is just one of many circumstances where Jesus set aside an inconvenient amount of time to commune with the Father. And a lot of times he prayed with other people and communed with other believers. Um, But we see the value that Christ had in that specifically because the scripture outlines that he stayed up. He didn't just get up early in the morning or go off by himself to the mountain. He prayed all night about it. I don't know how many of you guys have stayed up and prayed all night. I haven't. That seems incredibly difficult. And the next day is going to be a tough day. And you bet you that Jesus had a tough next day because that's when he commissioned all of his apostles. It's a big deal. He appointed all of them. Simon, a.k.a. Peter, and Andrew, Peter's brother, and James, and John, and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, all of them. He took it very seriously that those people were going to be the ones Even Judas Iscariot, the one that betrayed him. I'm sure that was an incredible element in his prayer. These were the people who would build his church, his teachers, his shepherds. And he took that process very seriously. Those people who would bring in God's scattered sheep. His people all over, and not just to the Jews anymore, right? But to the Gentiles, to everyone. Jesus says in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and turns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. This is kind of counterintuitive sometimes because we want to we wanna give praise and value those people that have been there the whole time. Like, that is extremely commendable. But God and all of his angels and all of that spiritual like element the kingdom of heaven values more when one person comes back to God rather than 99 people who have lived a great life this is rooting in teaching and going out and finding the lost sheep and if this wasn't clear the metaphor is that we are all sheep right because we're like little animals that like to huddle scared in a corner and be mindless and just get sheared and get flipped on our backs and get, you know, like drug around and stuff and have no real will of our own half the time, you know? But as appointing teachers, Jesus really valued who those people would be to round up those who are naive or helpless or scared and bring them back to the God who can give them the support and power they need and those people that will willingly submit to God and be strengthened in their weakness. 
Just before Jesus left us and ascended to heaven, he told his apostles in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all the nations, right? To baptize them, to teach them what Jesus taught. His last instruction was to have them find his sheep. This is a major indication of what God really values, what Christ really values in terms of what is going to turn into blessing. And he also had this dialogue with Peter in John 21, after his resurrection. Verse 15 of John 21. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And then Jesus repeated the same question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus replied again. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. He wanted to make an impression on Peter to the point of pain that his apostles would teach and preach and go out and find his lost sheep. We can't stress this enough. Every one of us is commanded to adopt these values of God. Jesus died for us and for his lost sheep, and his sacrifice won't be in vain. But it's our choice to participate in God's intent, in what he values all along the way, in all of these things. It's our choice to be his disciples and to be good disciples, to be obedient and worthy servants, to be bond servants of Christ, and to become like our master in that process, fully adopting the values that Jesus has, and allowing our priorities to recede when they're competing. We want to allow the body to obey the head. At the end of his life, Jesus makes sure his people are found and rescued. He makes sure that this process is really going. And he sends his spirit afterwards in an explosion of the Christian church, going out and making disciples aggressively and unprecedentedly in all of history to the point where it's undeniable that something incredible happened, a.k.a. the resurrection. But this was the emphasis at the end of Jesus' ministry. For us to go out and make disciples and communicate what God values to these people. Jesus makes sure that his people are found and rescued. All through his life, Jesus taught the truth and perspective and the value of his Father in heaven. And even in the beginning, Jesus built a foundation of godly value. As he pursues real wisdom, and bonds with his spiritual family in God's house. We see the whole process from very beginning to very end, valuing these types of things. These are some of the key things that God sees as valuable and worthy of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. There are plenty more, more than, I think as John says, all the books in the world could ever record. But these are some key issues that we can focus on and be productive with. Pursuing these values will bring actual blessings to our life, even here, but especially 
in the kingdom to come. So let's ask ourselves some questions about these things, about what types of key values we really are aware of and are pursuing in our life from day to day here. So how can we better prepare our kids to be like Jesus at an early age? How can we better prepare our kids to value and pursue their spiritual father even at a young age? And I get that 12 is kind of old, but his pursuit of God was very mature at 12. And you can bet yourself that he was pursuing God far before that too. But how can we... um, Way to phrase that. How can we promote that level of engagement of our children in terms of investing in God's values and understanding that? How is your, how is your attitude when it comes to godly education? How can you kindle that passionate fire and really engage wisdom, you know, in, in your mind, in your heart, and applying that in a way where we can emulate how Jesus did that and the fruit that it bore in terms of his understanding and ability to speak authoritatively about the things that the Father stood for and valued and the truths of his creation. And how can you best fit in God's order within the body versus the most appealing path to you? Submitting yourself to the order that as you're best guess and counsel from godly people and so on and so forth, your best fit within the body in terms of what God's design has been for you versus the most appealing or easiest path or um, the path of procrastination. And then lastly, how much do you value seeking and saving the lost? Like Jesus was so passionate about at the end and making sure that his apostles carefully chosen, would continue his legacy and build his church strong for the generations to come. Okay, let's go talk.